the PR Week. PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. This week, the PR Week takes a look back at its best interviews of the year. With this compilation podcast that includes PR Week editorial director Steve Barrett's chats with Tim Dyson. I think there are some deeper societal challenges that come with the way that we are now using technology. You know, it is changing the way that kids grow up, it's changing the way that we all do our jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Chris Foster. We continue to try to put systems in place where we're innovating and trying to anticipate some of our client needs uh, to support them on their journey. Uh, but also then drive growth. Margot Edelman. We can't just treat San Francisco like it's an outpost of the East Coast. It really is its own world. It has its own influencers, key reporters you need to know, key clients you need to have. And really what I've spent sort of the last seven years doing is making sure that we're part of that world. Kathy Kringer. Never in my life did I feel that my role was so important and vital to so many people than going through the beginning of the COVID emergency um, back in 2020. Patrick Lenahan. We're not trying to build something that it becomes your social life. We have a product that accelerates your social life, that helps you connect with people in the real world. And Valerie De La Garza. There's no question in our minds that one of the greatest pros of being virtual is being able to, to look at staff in places that are uh, that we would not have looked at pre-pandemic. We have staff in Minnesota. We have staff in Portland. Uh, we are in Alabama. We are in the South. When we were in, in four locations, we would have never dreamed of bringing in staff in those cities. Up first, we rewind back to April 21st of this year. And revisit Steve's conversation with Tim Dyson. Tim Dyson, who is CEO of Next15, in your time, what would you say the biggest high was and what was the biggest low? Because, you know, you've gone through so much and seen so much happen, especially in the tech world. Um, It's a good good question. I think, you know, watching, watching Microsoft grow in the early years was a... And I was fortunate. I got kind of a felt like effectively got a front row seat. You know, I got to to do work with Gates and Balmer and all those guys. That was a huge high because it, it felt like actually they were really sort of not only was I watching them sort of develop all this amazing technology, grow this incredible business, um, but they were they were really helping teach anybody that was with them this is how to do it. You know, this was a company that ran in those days very much on a management by objectives basis. Let's not do anything unless we know what it is that we're trying to do. And that's, you know, if it's in in down into PR, you know, Gates would be like, what's the headline? What's the headline that we're trying to get out of this story? Because if you couldn't write in the headline, he wasn't doing the interview. Um, You know, and so even if, in other words, even in a corner like communications, that was how they ran the company, but you, you got to see that that was how they did everything. And that was a fascinating, you know, it was like doing an MBA um, at speed with some of the most incredible people in the world. Um, you know, I think the, the lows in some cases came where you saw um, some of those companies really stumble, you know, where they, where they did make mistakes, where Microsoft, you know, with the antitrust stuff, it just did not wrap its head around it. Um, you know, and you've seen in some cases, you know, Facebook making similar 
kind of stumbles, if you like, where it's just not reading the room. It's not understanding how the world is seeing what they're doing and isn't grasping uh, the enormity of the challenge that's in front of them. And I think that's the part where, on one level, you can understand why they they see the world that way because you can see it through their lens. But also you tend to be this, you know, because you're an outsider, because you're a consultant, you see it through the other lens, which is this is how the other audiences are, are, are understanding what you're doing. And it looks bad, guys. You're going to have to do something. And it's that unwillingness to change that, you know, sometimes is, is just very hard to watch as a consultant. You know, you're, you're seeing a company that, you know, part of the reason that they've been so successful is because they're so insular. They do not pay attention to their competitors. They do not pay attention to, you know, some of those outside voices because it's what keeps them incredibly focused. But unfortunately, that sort of blinkered approach sometimes catches up with you. And I think, you know, when you see that happen as a consultant, it's very hard to take. Our next conversation originally aired May 5th. The guest is Chris Foster. We've got Chris Foster here, who's the Chief Executive Officer at Omnicom Public Relations Group. You're the sort of umbrella organization within the Omnicom holding company for the PR discipline. And, and obviously your agencies include Fleischmann Hillert, Ketchum, Porta Novelli, Marina Mar, etc. So uh, a, a really interesting role, an overarching role. Um, talk us through how it's been going. Yeah, no, thanks a lot. Um, you know, one year would be uh, will be next month in June. I started end of June last year, and I'd say it's it's been thrilling, right? I mean, it's I've I've loved the experience. Um, you know, getting to know the people, our clients, and the work. You know, as you know, you know, Steve, we're sort of a collection of iconic agencies with sort of a deep and varying expertise. So what's been fun is to sort of dive in and get to, you know, the secret sauce uh, of all of those, um, all those agencies and, and how we're deploying those against some of our biggest client needs. You know, one of the things that, you know, has been really surprising to me, I thought a lot of time and energy would have to be spent, you know, focusing on getting the organizations to collaborate, but the spirit of collaboration across the portfolio and globally has been absolutely, you know, awesome. Uh, and it, it was a real surprise. Um, you know, so that was, that's been, that's been good to see. You know, one of the things I set out to do a couple of things. One is make sure I understood the value prop, understood the organizations uh, and the people in the work. And I, and I got that done. Big focus on people, year one, not a surprise, I'm sure. Making sure I not just understood the people, but we, you know, brought on great talent uh, across the portfolio and, and put programs in place. You know, to, to make sure as we starting to come out of the pandemic that we did so responsibly and gave our employees the flexibility they needed and supported them in every step along the way. So we're in the middle of that now, uh, but the, there's been a big people focus. There's been a focus on clients, client service, uh, but also trying to make sure that, you know, we continue to try to put systems in place where we're innovating and trying to anticipate some of our client needs uh, to support them on their journey, uh, but also then then drive drive growth and then innovation. Um, you know, you 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 know, you've covered in the past. We spent a lot of time in investing in OEID. Um, that's going well. We're now looking at sort of OEID Omnicom. You know, earned intelligence at uh, 2.0. You know, and out, moving outside the U.S. to a broader sector of clients, getting some more specialty solutions in place, which has been been a good journey. So it's been fun. Um, I, you know, sort of love what I do, and I think we're uh, 
we're on a we're on a good trajectory moving forward. And as you know, we closed the year strong in in 2021, and we're off to a fairly good start in Q1, as you reported. And you know, I'm optimistic about Q2. Yeah, lots of layers to that. That, that one of the dangers of, of a holding company role like that is that sometimes it can be maybe purely ceremonial and not you know getting stuff done. But it sounds like you've been got some substantive things going on there. And are you going in almost? pitching for businesses Omnicom PR group on some occasions as well by pulling together sort of different elements of the of the group took took us to a little bit about about that yeah absolutely I mean you know look as you know I'm a a practitioner at heart I love the work and I like to dive into the work so I have spent you know as much time on the agencies and our people as I am with our clients um and you know what one of the things that I I was excited about and it has come to fruition is our ability to go in and offer solutions as OPRG. You know, we've seen evidence of that across, you know, our, our, our business and health or technology and others. So it's, it's, it's good. I mean, I, you know, people always ask, you know, do I want an entire OPRG solution? And, and the answer to that is no, I like the individual agency brands. They're iconic. I think they're, you know, they serve a, they serve a role, but there are some instances where it makes a lot more sense to provide an OPRG solution where I'll bring, you know, two or three agencies together, um, you know, in order to, to, you know, support our clients on the journey. And I've, I've been involved in a good bit of that. And it's actually helped us a bit, truthfully, you know, relative to staffing. Um, as you know, when you're trying to ramp up on a job that may require 10, 15, 20 staff, my ability to go across OPRG to find, you know, that specific account director with X experience or Y, and be able to, you know, move them on to, um, you know, a cross-holding company team has been, I can do it faster. And you also provide some growth opportunity for our staff. So I'm trying to find a way to use our size as an advantage when I'm, you know, not just to deliver solutions for clients, but also provide career growth opportunities to stretch uh, stretch our staff as well. So very much so looking to do more of that where I can. Our next guest dialed in virtually from the West Coast on May 12th. Since this conversation, she's made her way back to the East Coast, setting up shop in New York City. It's Margot Edelman. Really delighted to have Margot Edelman with us, who's uh, currently GM in the Bay Area for Edelman, but soon to be Deputy GM in New York City. It won't have gone unnoticed to listeners. Your surname is Edelman. You are, of course, Richard Edelman's eldest daughter. You have two sisters, and uh, I think one of them is in the business, and and one of Tori is is in the business. Amanda has been in the business and is finishing up at college. Um, How was that growing up? You know, as um, and then coming into the business because I guess in 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 one way you were mirroring your your father and he came into the business and so did his siblings, but uh, the business was nowhere near as big back then and it was no nowhere near as global and all encompassing. Was was it daunting? Was it exciting? I guess you grew up with it, but the yeah. bit about that. Absolutely. Well, listen, we, we grew up with Edelman. We grew up, you know, every weekend, you know, in the summer, my dad would have clients out to our house in Southampton. He'd have reporters out. Um, we grew up sort of knowing what the numbers of the business were. We'd sit down as a family and look at them with my grandfather when he was alive. So this is absolutely a family business and something that my sisters and I really grew up in. So, you know, and in a lot of ways, it's, you know, really fulfilling to be able to join the business and be able to have an impact. Um, I believe like, like, you know, I've been able to have on the West Coast. So in a lot of ways, again, it's, it's been it's been very exciting and very fulfilling. I would say sort of coming out of college and even business school, 
It definitely was a bit daunting, um, just because, as you said, the business is global. It's now the largest PR firm in the world. It was not, obviously, when I was growing up. So I definitely saw the the coming up of Edelman, um, and I know what that takes to do that. But you know, there there absolutely is a component that is a little bit is a little bit daunting when you're coming in. I would say what I've tried to do in my career is go to places where there's a need and where there's an opportunity to stand out. So when I graduated from business school, um, I actually went and worked in our research and insights division. Um, I worked for a guy. I was a former pollster to really help build out our insights practice, did that for two years. And again, it was a little bit like a startup within the overall company. So it was an opportunity to be creative, be more entrepreneurial. And then again, in moving out to the West Coast, I think it was an opportunity to be in a world that was different uh, than New York, than where sort of Edelman has had its traditional stronghold. And again, really build out the business, um, build out my relationships there and be in a place where, you know, I really could have an impact. And sort of going back to sort of the name Edelman, I do think, you know, having a name, you know, that name is definitely, it's a double-edged sword. I think sort of internally, there's very high expectations of what you can do and what you can deliver. Hopefully I deliver on those. Um, but then externally, listen, it's, it's great for opening doors. People will meet with me or at least, you know, take a take a 10 minute phone call that they wouldn't necessarily from other people at the company. Um, and in a, in a place that, you know, where Edelman, I think at the time, needed more access, it was a great way to open up some doors and to start building relationships on the West Coast. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I saw that Richard was inducted into the Advertising Hall of Fame last week, and he said in his acceptance speech that his mother used to rouse him at 7 a.m. with a whistle. Yeah. Is that something that you experienced in your siblings as kids as well, or had things changed in the parenting department by then? That's a that's a very good question. Uh, there, there were no whistles um, in my family, but no, listen, my dad always had very high standards for us. And, you know, it was definitely, you know, focus on grades, focus on, you know, excelling in athletics. So, you know, I think absolutely that that focus on achievement um, has never gone away. And my grandparents actually, I mean, I'm, you know, they were they were young enough when I was growing up that I, I knew them quite well. And I remember when I had a bat mitzvah, I actually got my grandparents gave me a, the first year tuition to Harvard uh, when I was in seventh grade, despite not being anywhere near uh, college yet. So they they also had very high expectations for us grandkids as well. What didn't just extend to my dad. Coming up, we flashback to the summertime, August 18th, to Steve's conversation with Kathy Kringer. Calling in from Chicago, Kathy Kringer, who's the global CCO of Kraft Heinz. Yeah, so we're coming to Chicago, Kathy, and we're celebrating purpose, and we're also having purpose as the focus of the conference, Purpose Evolved. So talk to us about how you've approached that at Kraft Heinz, because, you know, purpose has been a big topic for the last five, 10 years. And when economic times change or, you know, big geopolitical stuff is happening, maybe it sometimes gets put in the background. But how do you ensure it's authentically at the front of what you're doing and, and your communications? Yeah, absolutely. Purpose is really core to Kraft Heinz, and it's really about making life delicious for every stakeholder, every group. Um, our consumers, you know, our, our employees. And I mean, you cannot walk through the halls of this building without knowing what our purpose is and talking about that. I, I think, you know, we start a lot of our meetings by talking about what's made your day delicious or your week delicious or your life delicious. It's kind of the way we speak and think about how we serve others um, and we can make we can make their lives a little bit better with with what we produce. So 
It's not really fallen by the wayside for us. And I think the other, it really connects so much to our ESG effort, efforts as well. So for us, it's kind of the conversation, you know, that we have every single day. Um, we think about our brands through that lens and it definitely helps us make decisions. You know, if it's not going to truly make someone's life delicious or enhance, you know, their their day, their meal, their life, we, we have to make some choices sometimes to not do things. So for me, that's just as important with having a purpose is how you bring it to life, but also how you make choices about where you prioritize. So um, I love that you guys celebrate purpose. I, I think it's so important. I got to look through the list and there's some good new faces and, and companies and, and agencies in here, but then there's some of the tried and true, you know, that I've seen before. So um, it's clearly still a huge priority. We continue on with our top conversations of 2022. Going back to October 6th, Patrick Lenahan. And we got Patrick Lenahan, who's VP Global Head of Communications at Grinder. Patrick, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thank you so much, Steve. I'm well, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you, Frank. For those who don't know, Grinder is a dating app aimed at the LGBTQ community. Largest LGBTQ social network in the world. There you go. So you call yourselves a social network rather than a dating site. Is that a deliberate sort of distinction to bring it as a wider sort of uh, yeah. forum, if you like? So it's Grinder was founded in 2009, and the initial use case was absolutely sort of what we euphemistically call casual dating, hooking up. And this is something that's central to gay culture. Over time, the app has it's an, it's a really a very flexible technology. It's just proximity based, a grid of profiles. So you can sort of use it for whatever you'd like. And we find that obviously casual dating and, and serious dating are are sort of core to what people use us for, but People hop on there to you know, find out what's happening in a given city when they're traveling. They use it to find roommates, to find tennis partners. It's kind of amazing what people tend to use it for. And over time, we're going to productize all those use cases and help people do it better, faster, more easily. Yeah, I remember stories like when the London Olympics, a massive spike in the use of Grinder and other dating apps from the Olympic Village, which I guess was a story opportunity but it does have that casual dating element to it. Is that a good or a bad thing? It was a bit of a character in the uh, Billy Eichner production recently. Of, we get a lot of free marketing. I think that speaks yeah. to the value of the brand. Yeah. Casual dating is something that's sort of, it's neither good nor bad. It's inherent to the LGBTQ community. Like Sex is a core part of the human experience, and we don't shy away from that at all. The gay community tends to talk about it a lot more openly, and it's the basis for a lot of our social relationships. But to define the LGBTQ community only in terms of sex is incredibly narrow and misses the point, which is that there's so much richness on top of that. So that's sort of how we think about it. It's sex is important. We don't shy away from that, but there's a lot more there. Now, you mentioned you were the first head of comms at Grindr. And so you've you come to a very dis- different situation than you were at at Goldman Sachs or Google, where there's very established, you're working for Jake Seward at Goldman Sachs and big team at Google. How was different was that then? And how did you approach that in terms of s- setting up a team and sort of setting up a communications function? So I've been lucky enough to help advise growth stage companies for most of my career. When I was at Google, I worked with the folks at Capital G, at Goldman, I worked with their growth equity investment group. And so I've had a chance to talk to tons of companies who are exactly in this phase of growth, about to go public. They've got big brands, they've got a growing user base, they're hitting profitability, but they're, they, they're thinking about, well, how do I set up a communications function for the next several years? So I felt 
honored to get to do that uh, at a company that serves my my people, and I'm a gay man out for 20 years. Um, so when I got there, I mean, the first thing to do before you start imposing your will on anything is understand well, what's there and what's going on. And um, so I've spent most of the last year trying to figure that out and understand what are the stories here, what's making this company tick, and what are the big issues that we need to to work on. And 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 really, what we've sort of concluded is that we need people to understand our mission which is to connect LGBTQ people with one another in the world. And we think we're very good at doing that uh, to share that mission with other people. And then to talk to them about the manner in which we go about that mission, which is focused on safety, privacy, and community support. Um, and we've been, we've been working on telling those stories, both with earned and paid and owned media. And you'll see a lot more of that as we go uh, and hit the public markets. We wrap up this special episode of the PR Week with a conversation from a not-so-distant past. Going back to November 10th, the Steve's Conversation with Valerie De La Garza. And we've got a brilliant guest this week. It's Valerie De La Garza, who's the CEO of Fenton. Valerie, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, now you're based in various places around the country, New York, D.C., San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Do you see differences in those different markets in terms of diversity and in making it work? Or is is the culture really uh, what matters mainly? And, and how much is the fact that you do a lot of social good work a factor in having a, a more diverse operation too? Sure. I would say, so first of all, we went from a geographic model uh, to one that really is, is virtual. Uh, and we used to be in four of those four cities, as you mentioned. We had the physical offices, and now we have been uh, really intentional around uh, uh, looking for talent across the country. So we're actually in 19 cities, and we have a presence in Canada as well. And that has also allowed us to be open in, in, in bringing in uh, you know, an even wider pool of multicultural and, and uh, uh, staff, for sure. So I think that that has definitely helped. And I would say that because of the nature of the work that we do uh, around protecting our democracy, uh, you know, fighting voter suppression, uh, uh, education reform, racial justice, it, does, it there's no question that it attracts people who have the same mission that are mission driven as we are. So I think that all of those things have really combined to be uh, very helpful in us in, in increasing our numbers and, and, and being representative. Yeah. So DE and I doesn't have to rely on being in person then. you can make it work in a virtual environment, too. That's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and I think that. You know, while certainly we can have a whole conversation about uh, the pros and cons of, of being virtual, there's no question in our minds that one of the greatest pros of being virtual is being able to to look at staff in places that are uh, that we would not have looked at pre-pandemic. We have staff in Minnesota. We have staff in Portland. Uh, we are in Alabama. We are in the South. When we were in, in four locations, we would have never dreamed of bringing in staff in those uh, in those cities. And frankly, as a as an organization that deals with social change, we do need to be where all of the people are, and we do need to be where many of the fights uh, that our clients are are battling are. So it, it's worked out quite well for us. 
Yeah, and in fact, you're all getting together, I think, in New Orleans next week. And a lot of you will be meeting for the first time because uh, after the pandemic and, you know, the hiatus there, it'll be, it should be a, a fun get-together by the sounds of it. Yeah, Steve, what's really interesting is, is uh, imagine working together for nearly three years and many people have never, in fact, met each other. And uh, we know each other across the screen. But there's nothing like having that in-person interaction. So we're looking to connect. We're doing a lot of training, uh, a lot of uh, skills building. And uh, our staff in general, I think we're just really interested in being together in our 40th year. Hope you enjoyed taking a look back at some of our best conversations of 2022. As Steve Barrett says, that's all we've got time for this week. Steve Barrett, Frank Washcook, and the rest of the PR Week team will be back with brand new episodes of the PR Week in 2023. See you then.